There's only one insurmountable barrier so far that I'm aware of, and it's death. The others are are manageable. As long as you don't give up, you know, I think you you can always hope to find a way to solve problems. So, and I really believe that. And I love it when we encounter something in our business where we say, gosh, you know, there, there are only two models. There's this scaled model where everything's really big. And there's this, you know, completely fragmented model where everything's really small and there's no in between. And it can't be in between because you've got to be laser low cost or super different. Kid. I love when I hear those things because it makes me want to do something different. You know, I love to be, I love to find a new way. And I think there's always a way to do something, to try something and to experiment. You know, I just very rarely hit, hit these real dark periods of doubt. I would much rather just act on something and then correct it later than sit around and doubt myself, worry about it too much. This week, I'm excited to welcome Bracken Darrell, CEO of Logitech. In the short of the normal episode, industry-leading difference maker and masterful storyteller Bracken shares his perspectives on life, leadership, learning, the power and value of design thinking, Logitech's sustainability imperative, remaining nimble and fostering values of hunger and humility. Bracken was born in Owensboro, Kentucky. He majored in English in Arkansas, then graduated accountancy in Texas. He became a public accountant to Arthur Anderson before earning his MBA at Harvard. This led him to pivot into brand management at P&G before finally moving into general management at GE, which set him on his path to becoming CEO at Logitech in 2012. What on paper looks like a stellar linear journey, in reality Bracken has had to navigate and overcome imposter syndrome. While intentional with his goals, he's taken action, learned from mistakes, acknowledged successes, while remaining humble and focused on the journey ahead. It's pretty much a recipe for engineering serendipity. Under Bracken's leadership, Logitech's experienced significant growth. After a decade of leading innovation, digital transformation, and fostering a design-led culture at Logitech, Bracken is now focused on transforming forward and scaling Logitech's impact beyond mere profit for the benefit of people and the planet. Uh, okay. So w- welcome to the Impossible Network, Bracken. It's great to speak to you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me, Mark. Well, I very much appreciate your time on this Friday afternoon. And where does this find you? I am in California, Northern California, which for once, in a, uh, lately it's been very rainy, but today it's beautiful. I was going to say, I'm sitting here in Austin, Texas, and we had the most torrential storm last night, but sunny today. So everyone's happy. We're in good places. So having established um, uh, with my introduction as to what you do, um, I'd love to start with two fundamental, pretty big questions, um, really about you, uh, for people that don't know you, just to establish uh, who you are. So the question is, who are you? Who are you as a human being? Uh, well, I'm a father of three. I'm a, a friend to many, and uh, and I'm a person who loves to try to make an impact on the world through uh, the things I love, which is, and I love a lot of things. One of them is my work. So uh, you are doing extraordinary things in, in your role currently as a CEO of Logitech. Um, you clearly have must have very solid values and principles. Who made you or what made you the person you are today? Well, I grew up in a, in a small town in Kentucky, Owensboro. I, uh, I had a, a single mom who my dad left when I was nine, nine or ten years old. And uh, that probably made me quite independent. And then my a whole bunch of things probably impacted me, including my siblings. But one of the things that happened in my that year when my dad left was my mom kind of fell apart, and she had uh, probably a nervous breakdown. 
and had four car wrecks in one year. She would come home every night and second guess uh, what she'd done in school that day. She was a first grade teacher and you know what she said to the principal and her marriage you know, that was over. And, and at some point in those conversations I had with her, and I imagine my siblings had them too, I don't know. Um, I said to her, you know, mom, it's, it's, you know, everything that's already happened, you, know, you obviously can't change. Um, so you should just imagine you're standing on a beach, you've got a stick in your hand and you drag that stick behind your heels. Everything behind you is just to learn from it really, you, know, you can't change it. So you should just learn from it. And then your whole life is right here. And, uh, that's, that's one of those fundamental tenets I've, I've grown up with. Not, not just don't try to look back in the past and relive it, but also, this idea of continuously starting with that line in the sand behind you, you know, it's, it's a chance to start over again every, every year, every, every month, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, really having that mindset of being a beginner all the time, uh, it reinforces a need that not the need, but just the reality that you ought to be humble. Uh, you are not, you are not your failures, uh, and you are not your successes. You know, you're, you're whatever you're going to be from here forward. It's quite a stoic um, mindset. I do like stoicism, as a matter yeah. of fact. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Marcus Aurelius? Yeah. <laughs> for anybody listening out there, if you're looking for an amazing book that most people have not read, it's there's a book that the uh, the writer, I'm convinced, read Memoirs of Haley, Hadrian, or, sorry, read uh, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations and then mm-hmm. created a fictional uh, autobiography by this, the famous emperor Hadrian, who selected Marcus Aurelius to be his emperor too after him. And uh, it's called Memoirs of Hadrian, and it's amazing. Written by Margaret Yersenar. I didn't know that. I will add that to show notes and put it on my Audible list. It's an incredible book. Okay. <laughs> That's a good one. And who was the author? Uh, Margaret Yersenar, who is a uh, – she was Belgian by birth but, but grew up in France. Won the, high, the equivalent of the, the, the Pilcher Nobel in, for France. Excellent. Okay. Well, that was- Great one. I'll definitely uh, add that. So you mentioned um, your your mother and the impact of your mother. Were there any other sort of teachers, mentors, or early life experiences that were pivotal or def- defining the journey you've taken? Yeah, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I, I couldn't go a step further without talking about my siblings, you know, Bobby, Bart, and Shelly. So I uh, two older brothers and a younger sister. And, uh, yeah, I think you know, if birth order has a lot to do with you, I think who happens to be in that birth order also has a lot to do with who you are. I have, I am blessed with three great people in those spot, in those roles. And each one of them played a different role in my life, you know, and, and they, the coolest thing about that is, uh, in the early days, they helped me be more competitive, uh, face reality a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and be, a and, and be kind. And then, then most recently, now they're, they're really good friends and we, we support each other. You know, we, we have a, like so many families do, we have an ongoing chat going. So it's a, it's a lifelong, it's a, these are lifelong loves that uh, have really been amazing for me. Well, let's talk about what you're working to achieve uh, before you leave this mortal coil as uh, was uh, in Hamlet's famous soliloquy. Uh, <laughs> long way to go yet, yeah, a lot of work to do. Um, and we're, we are living at a time, um, at a very pivotal point in time. And I was talking to a guest the other day, um, Melanie van der Velde, and she talked about Adam Smith's uh, theory of moral sentiments and said that free markets can only operate with strong principles of justice. Now, I listened to you, a great reflection on your 10 years at, um, 
at Logitech, and you talked about transforming forward with a clear mission to address the social, organizational, and environmental injustices that exist. Um, and at, at your recent Edison Achievement Award, um, you talked about enabling people to fill their passions in a way that is good for the planet. Now, many people today clearly feel anxious. Now, the guests have recently talked about the, this great unraveling that's happened after COVID, that there's almost a societal level trauma going on. Um, and many people feel hopeless about the scale of the challenges we feel and expect that government, feel governments are failing us. But you're, you're a industry leading, um, CEO visionary and you're leading this transformation forward. Can you explain uh, why business leaders like yourself can be dis difference makers over governments and be the standard bearers for change that we need in the world? Yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll I'll tell a story to try to explain that my view of that. Uh, when Fro when uh, George Floyd was murdered in 2020, uh, the the most notable thing the first few days after it had hit the the internet and you know millions hundreds of millions of people saw it was the silence coming from uh, you know the top of government and you know that was a that was a very uncomfortable silence and I think took me by surprise. I think took a lot of us by surprise. I think most of my life as a leader, I've been used to the government taking, you know, a moral stand on things that seem to matter. And there didn't seem to be anybody taking a moral stand at the very top. And so that caused me to reflect on, you know, on my past, I was thinking about South Africa and apartheid. And I was at my dining room table about our kitchen table about four days later. And I was thinking about, wonder what those, business leaders in South Africa, when this was going on, was, I'm sure there were they had, there were a lot of great moral business leaders living and working in apartheid who disagreed with apartheid. I was thinking, what did? wonder what they did. I wonder if they spoke out. And then it kind of struck me, like getting hit in the head with a baseball bat or something, um, that I'm one of those leaders and I'm living in the American apartheid and, and I'm not speaking out. And that was a dramatic kind of transformative moment in my mindset where I realized I'd always thought I was one of the good guys. And I realized that I was just one of the guys and it was time to completely flip that upside down. And I, so I, I really uh, stunned to look in the mirror and see what I really was, which was a bystander. And so I just, I, I, I drafted my first, um, you know, blog post on, on LinkedIn on, uh, on the George Floyd murder, and and I proceeded to kind of turn my whole life over, you know, all the rocks in my life and look on the other side and see what I'd been missing and real, real focus on trying to understand, you know, how in the world I was sitting in the middle of having, you know, black friends and, you know, thinking I was a, an advocate for anti-racism and, and that I just sat there and said nothing for so long. And I realized I'd done very little relative to what I thought, even though I was on the diversity council and I was all these things. So that was a dramatic motor for me. And I think it, it, to, to answer your question now more directly with that background, I think I realized that actually we can't, we can't leave it up to governments to, to do the right thing. We're in a world where companies are global and uh, companies have incredible resources and and influence on their own people and on the people around them and their customers and suppliers. And you can make a massive difference. The reason I got into this business was because you can make a massive difference from, from an individual company. So why in the world wouldn't you do that um, in, in, pl in places where justice really is not happening? And uh, 
And then I can answer your follow-up question, which I'll ask for you, which is, is it the role of the company to have a moral position? And uh, is it your job to try to seek justice in these jobs, or is it your primary job to, to seek uh, value creation for shareholders and let society deal with the rest? I think the, the really exciting thing about the, the that question is that I don't think you can separate at least two areas of uh, uh, two moral areas from business performance anymore. I think for certainly environmental sustainability. I think if you're not an environmental environmentally sustainable company in the next decade, you'll be out in almost every industry. At least you'll be behind and losing losing ground. Um, and I think on DE and I will be the same. You know, when I when I was uh, when I was an early CEO, I would go around to investor meetings with a virtual picture of a of a chart that showed the power of design to transform a company's value. And it, it showed design companies on one line and it showed all the other companies, you know, deep, the thousands of industrial average on the other. And, and design companies got a 300% better return over 10 years than, than non-design companies or everybody else. And I think we could put the same chart up 10 years from now. Those that are leading the way in environmental sustainability and DE&I will way outperform the others. And uh, that's a leap of faith. It was a leap of faith for me on design one time ago, but I was right then and I'll be right now. Mm-hmm. What could be done to um, encourage other leaders to follow in your footsteps and accelerate the changes they're implementing? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of conversation and talk at Davos and um you know, we've got ESG sort of standards. All investors are now focused on ESG. Uh, stakeholder capitalism has talked about it at length. But still, if you, if we actually look at, not talking about uh, DEI, but just looking at uh, sustainability, there is a bit of a climate paradox. The things are moving at a certain speed, at a certain scale, but they're moving at the speed where we're actually seeing significant reductions in carbon emissions. We're still seeing widespread um, injustice, social and economic injustice. So if it is going to fall on the, uh, fall on the shoulders of organizations and their leaders like yourself to take these bold steps, some of them aren't moving fast enough, it would appear. So I think, so, you, so your fundamental question is what do what, what, do, what could I do to influence other companies? What could Logitech do to influence other companies? I think, first of all, there are a lot of companies that are doing what we're doing. You know, we're, we're uh, not as many as we need, but there are many, many joining the, the bandwagon here. We're carbon neutral now. We're, we'll be climate positive. We're carbon negative by 2030. That's why in that purpose statement you mentioned earlier, I said we're going to be a company that enables all people to pursue their passions in a way that's good for the planet, not, not less bad. So we're going to be actually negative in carbon. Part of our initiative there to impact not only our own company, but other companies and put a, a forcing function on ourselves and others is to carbon label. So we started carbon labeling three years that, yeah. ago. Yeah. And we, and by carbon labeling and having a, an accurate carbon label, and then, uh, you know, it, that's like calories, you know, if, you know, carbon's a new calorie. If you, if you buy something and it has a, a label that has a carbon, an amount of carbon, you know, for example, this mouse, is equal to about its entire life from the, the creation of the components to the end of life and usage in between two of the power and the wall. This is the equivalent of about a gallon of gas and carbon impact. If we're still a gallon of gas, you know, three years ago when we create the new version of that, we will have failed. And I, I suspect there will be advocates out there on the consumer side and the regulatory side will think we failed. 
if our competitor is launching a product that's similar to this at, at two gallons of gas, they'll probably get dinged for that by Amazon and by everybody who writes them. So competition will, will be good, will be a really good thing for this. But we need carbon labeling. I w- I'm a big proponent of legislation requiring carbon labeling on all products. It's, it can be expensive, but the more we do, the more of us who do it, the less expensive it will be. That's one thing we can do. The second thing we can do um, is be transparent about our goals and transparent about our data and make sure that we're all using the same uh, kind of data. You know, just to use that example, you know, carbon labeling, you could you could have a thousand different ways to come up with the, to estimate the amount of carbon in the life of any product. We need standards and hopefully industries can join together and create the standards that are consistent. We're trying to do that. And we've got a lot of partners now behind the scenes that are, that are advocates for that. Um, but if not, we need to get it legislated, I think. And so for the first time in my career, I've got a legislative uh, player on my team because I do think this is super important. Um, and that's just a couple of examples, but I, I think there, you know, we're a little mouse company, but but sometimes a little mouse can influence uh, some big companies too. Maybe, growing, a growing mouse company. <laughs> yeah, maybe even a better way. We're because we're we're Swiss, you know, so we're neutral to everybody, but we're we're able to kind of nudge people a little bit, and not get in trouble. Uh, you talk a lot about design thinking, and you've talked a lot about design being an iterative process um, aimed at imagining future state and then delivering it through new and existing technologies. Where do you think um, in organization and leaders embracing your design thinking mentality can actually help them accelerate uh, these solutions, leaving aside things like the carbon labeling? Because there's still a lot of com- a lot of talk around design thinking. It's a, it's a f- term that's thrown around quite without much thought. And I doubt whether many companies outside technology really do implement it. But I'm just wondering your perspective, given you're such a sort of a proponent. Yeah, I think I think design and design thinking are not, um, it's not sort of a, here's what you do, and then you've completed it, and you're a design thinking organization. You know, I think it's a, it's a pathway to something much better for your users, and I believe for your shareholders and your employees and the planet. And um, there are three three areas that you really have to think about when you're when you're designing something for for any any individual user. The first one is what do they want, and often what you think you want, you don't really know what you want. You know, if I ask you what you want in a mouse, I bet it take you a little while to come up with something. But I bet if I watched you and uh, and maybe gave you some things to do, and and I bet I could figure out what you want even more than you could. So, because I'm an expert in this in this business in this in this product. So, what is the desirability of the product? The second one is the viability of the product. Can you do it? Is there technology to push you out there to do that kind of thing? Um, can you do it at the cost you need to, to do that? And there's a, there, there are a couple more, but one of them that we've added is, um, is the environmental sustainability of the product. So is it good for the planet? Is it less bad than the prior version? Oh, we will get to less bad. So design for sustainability is a part of design thinking now. And for good people who really believe in design in its purest form, it started with Dieter Roms, who was a great industrial designer. One of his principles of design was design should be responsible to the planet. So, so I, I think design and design thinking can really be an incredible tool for any organization. And you don't have to start with a big design team, which I do have now. But when we started, we had no nobody. And you can start small, but, but you can make a mighty impact. And, and everybody can be a design thinker, every single person, because... At the end of the day, we're all experimenters, and that's the most important part of design thinking. Um, 
I heard you talk obviously before about the influence of Dieter Rams on your approach to leadership. Um, and I also heard you talk about your, you, his 10 principles, but you've got five you, you talked about. And, and there's two of those principles. You maybe explain the five and then talk about two of them. You called, I think it's one's powerful idea and the set number five is magical. Would you mind just unpacking that? Yeah. One, uh, so one powerful idea is, uh, or one big idea, a big idea is one of them. So that's really, you know, finding a space that's really big to work on. You know, I always use uh, Henry Ford's, you know, that everybody should have the freedom of a car. You know, it's a big idea. You know, and that, that, now that there's another design principle, which is that, that what makes the Ford car different from, you know, the, the Volkswagen Beetle, you know, which is it has a, every, every great, I should have a soul that expresses itself through every layer of experience. You know, the beetle, you can picture what that is. It's, uh, it, for the, for the, for the Model T, it was one, it was the every man's car. Everybody has the same car. That was the idea. For the Volkswagen Beetle, it was a lovable buck. You know, it was a lovable thing. Um, the magical part of that is, is really maybe in some ways the piece that people get the, get right the least often, which is, um, it should surprise you a little bit. So wonderful when you're surprised. You know, surprise is such an important component of experience. And if you're surprised, some people would say delighted. You don't want a bad surprise with the product or experience. But if you're if you have a, a, sl- a slightly surprisingly good experience, it's really amazing. And I just love when I have surprisingly good experience, whether it's a service experience or a physical product experience. Talking of, um, uh, you talk about mouse company, um, someone that works for a competitor to another mouse company, uh, Pixar, Ed Catmull, um, is it, quoted as saying, when it comes to creative endeavors, the concept of zero failures is worse than useless. It's counterproductive. I've, again, I've heard you talk a lot about uh, your perspective on learning, uh, failure through a learning lens. Can you share uh, how you actually nurture that in your teams? Yeah, I, I, I have, uh, I feel even, maybe even stronger about that than Ed does. I, I actually don't think we should use the word failure or success. I think they're really dangerous concepts. I mean, everybody seeks success, but the minute you have it, you try to protect it and you lose a lot of the independence and, and experimentation that got you there. Uh, and then failure is you know, terrible because you, you know, you, you try to avoid failure because who wants to fail? And, you know, I think these are both just learning experiences and they're, they're, they're just descriptions of something that's already happened. So I'm uh, what we try to do is, uh, is experiment a lot. So we have, we, we have this, this model we call trees, plants, and seeds. Trees, the big businesses that are mature and uh, this, the this plants are fast-growing businesses that we invest in. And seeds are the new ones. These are the ones that are really relevant here. The ones where we create small teams and we, we just experiment with users and try to create something that's really unique and different and powerful. And um, we, we have between five and 20 new categories in development at a time. And they're run by sometimes just one person, often by entrepreneurs, but not always. And, um, and you know, they, they often don't make it out of the, of the starting blocks, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. We give people, a, we give the teams a bonus when they, if they don't make it out and we move them on to other things. And we try to make it uh, not feel like a failure if it doesn't work because we're going to have a lot of those that's, uh, by design. That's the way, that's the way creativity happens, as, as Ed Catmull said. Mm. I interviewed a, a, an ex-colleague of mine. I spent all my life working in branding and advertising. And one of my ex-creative uh, uh, sort of partners um, is now an inventor. 
and we were talking about failure and success and he follows a philosophy a german philosopher's view and it's a, a thing called emergence that everything is emerging that what happened yesterday it's a bit like your line in the sand sort of um, yeah. example from earlier that we're all in this state of emergence and when you actually embrace the principles of emergence nothing is a failure nothing is a, nothing is a success you are just every day progressing on the pathway towards where you're where you're meant to go which i think yeah. is an interesting sort of philosophy to it, it really does sort of start to ground you i love that i really love that i hadn't heard that extent. yeah it's it's really good I, i'll send you a link to his interview where he talks about it and the timestamp because he he delivers it so eloquently and i've heard a lot of people watch that went oh my goodness that's made me rethink my life <laughs> well i think I think it's a wonderful way to think. You know, some people could say it's rationalization, but I, I get the question all the time. You know, what's if you could go back to your twenty? You know, when you were nineteen, and could do something. What would you do? And I, I always say, I, I just don't even know how to answer that. Yeah, I, I cannot answer that. I, I, maybe because I don't let myself answer, but I just don't believe in that. I, I do believe in your concept of or his concept of emergence. emergence yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, you'd spend a lot of time with founders and startups. As a, a leader of a, a essentially a, a Fortune, believe it, Fortune two hundred company, Fortune something, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. Have. But but I think that is quite unusual for someone to actually dedicate so much time to spend time with founders and startups. Um, presumably, you have a really good reason for doing it, but it obviously helps you stay close. I think you've you've said close to the edge. But what, what lessons do you learn from these conversations, uh, observations, and experiences? Well, first, why did I do it? Because, you know, I, I did it because I moved out to Silicon Valley. And, you know, if you don't live in Silicon Valley, especially when I was moving out here 10 years ago, all, well, all you hear is that this is like a startup mecca, you know, so I wanted to get an understanding of what that scene is all about. So I immediately came out with the C venture capital firms all over the place and then started meeting with founders who would reach out to me. And um, I met with three a day to three a week. In the early days, it was always three a day. I would usually do it at breakfast. I had a room blocked off and a little... A, a tiny little restaurant here that they basically gave me the room said yeah you're here so much just we want you away from our other customers so well you can have this room back here and people would just come i just run uh have meetings in there you know it was awesome and i learned so much one of the things i learned was the power of small teams i i was just blown away i'd have uh, we'd have some big team working inside logitech my first year or two on some very difficult problem and then i'd see you know a three-person team or a four-person team come in and they've already either solved that problem or one that looked like it in three months with nothing but three or four people. And we had an army of people working on it for a year. I was like, what is wrong with us? You know, and, and then I realized it's not something wrong with us. It's just too many of us. You know, we need to get, we need to have fewer people working on things, you know, and, and, and maybe more things work out, uh, to work on. But, but, but the small teams are where the action is. And I really learned that from startups. Mm -hmm. I suppose at that time when you 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 joined Logitech, it was still the early days of the agile thinking movement, and the start startups were obviously the first to embrace agile. So presumably that was a part of it in flattening the structures and creating yeah. more direct reports. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Um, you've had a fascinating journey of transformation professionally and and personally. And through your public speaking and increasingly through your writings, um, you've shared a lot of your wisdom, uh, cautionary words about success, the, the, the uh, rejection of the word failure or, and then using learning experiences as your, the lens through which you look at it. 
You've also been very transparent about your growth as a leader. And it's interesting hearing you talk, uh, and which again is quite rare in CEO circles, um, of being so transparent about your personal growth. Um, what led you to, to, to be so authentic and transparent? Um, I, I, I think I have a hard time answering what led me to be that way. You know, it's kind of like, why are you the way you are? You know, I, I don't really know, but I do think, um, I do love the, uh, the transparency that I feel like I can be. I don't think I was this transparent for much of my career. I think it's easy to be transparent. You've got 10 years of track record as a CEO, and it's pretty good. It would be much harder in your first year to be as, you know, say, to talk openly about some of the things I do now. You know, it obviously not only gives you confidence, but it gives you a safety net. So I, I also realize when I'm giving advice to founders and things that my advice is all is a little too rooted in who I am. You know, sometimes I need to listen a hell of a lot more and, and try that crazy to empathize better because I think it's not as easy uh, for somebody who's, you know, 28 years old and it's their first startup to be humble. You know, you sometimes need to be, you know, being your chest and talk about how great you are. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, if you watched me too much, you think, oh, being humble is like a super good idea, you know, for everybody. You know, there's a time to be humble, there's a time to be proud, you know. So I don't know. I, I think I think it, I will just pivot your question a little bit and just talk for a second about um, how bad I was in the beginning in some areas. You know, I was I was pretty good in some areas, but I was really bad, for example, in managing my board. I I came in with a chair who I love who you felt the same way I did about boards at the time. I felt like they were kind of necessary evil. And you just tried to do the bare minimum you could with the board. And uh, they were a governance body. They didn't really add a lot of value. And uh, and so when they challenged me, I was very defensive. And uh, everything they said, I felt like personally mortally wounded, you know, if they criticized something I was working on. It took me, you know, four or five years to finally or maybe six to finally realize, oh my gosh, this is what a wasted opportunity. These are amazing people who know my company better than most people would. And I have an opportunity to use them and put things in front of them and get their feedback. They do have a governance not to do, which is great. But I, I've got to, you know, get a hell of a lot more thick skinned and, and, and listen, you know, I don't have to do everything they say, but I've got to, I should want to hear everything they say. So it took me too long to get to that point, you know, and I, maybe other CEOs are better than I was, <laughs> but I'm now. So now I really do get it. Mm. Just as you were talking about looking back, was there a, mo a moment in time over those 10 years when you became abundantly aware that you, the company needed to do more in the sustainability space and you were early to em embrace the carbon labeling? Well, I was, I was always a big believer in environmental sustainability. A, when I joined the company, we were already doing a lot of great stuff. We were moving to renewable power. I think we were at 92% of our, our sources of power from all of our factories and offices around the world was renewable. So we were already well downstream. We were, we, we had a, a great operations leader as a believer. I was a big believer. It was one of those principles designed I believed in. Um, and again, it was a little bit like, uh, probably a little bit like DEI. I thought we were really the good guys. And then as I read more and more, about where the world's going and global warming became more and more obviously happening. Uh, then it became, it, I, would get this, I had this sense of urgency welling up in me. And one of my head of, my head of operations, Prakash Arkandra, um, he's the COO now, he had the same feeling. And we would talk about this. And at some point, I think the light clicked for both. I mean, the, the light just completely went on bright for both of us. There's no more time. It's now. You know, we can't sit around and, 
and, and talk about well, how we wish things were going to be. We have to go make them that way and then try to influence other companies with that. So that was probably 2018, 2019, where we really felt this incredible sense of urgency. And we haven't looked back now. You know, we're committed to climate negative. We're carbon negative. We're uh, carbon labeling everything. We're, we're going to 360. We're, we've got recycled plastic and 70% of our products and our biggest product lines. We're going to move that to everywhere. So we're, we're all over this now. It's super urgent. Mm-hmm. When I sent the question, I, I did put in a piece about the um, Ingvar Kamprad, uh, the founder of IKEA's wonderful little book, The Testament of a Furniture oh, Dealer. Laser. It's one of the most undiscovered uh, little gems of wisdom that I think every, every business leader should. And when I when I'd heard you talk about humbleness, it made me think of him and that, that perspective. You're, you're the first person in a long time that's mentioned that to me. First time I saw it was uh, 2010, I think, or 2009. Yeah, it was about the same Maybe time early. I saw it. Yeah, uh, it's just a magical book, and I, and I would encourage anybody who's never seen it to, to try to get a copy. I'm sure you could find it online now. Yeah, you can. I'll, I'm going to put it in the show notes as well. Good. But but that humbleness um, is that something you encourage in your teams and your uh, other direct reports, or is it something you just think is just unique to yourself or is it something you, you would think is a something that the company should embrace? Well, I don't, I don't, I, I try not to encourage kind of the all shocks. It was not the, you know, kind of humility, which is the false humility of, you know, let's not, and let's pretend we didn't do something good, you know, because it looked like we're humble, you know, what we do, we do have a value. We specifically call out, which is humility. But we partner that with another value, which is hunger and drive, you know, real hunger. So the reason, but when we talk about the humility, we don't talk about it as, you know, oh, you know, yeah, we're, we're great, but you, you know, we don't feel great. You know, it wasn't, we don't talk about that. We talk about it completely as a realization that we have a lot to learn. That's the, that's the key. It's about that's humility is based on the fact that you just don't know as much as you need to ever. And you have to keep striving for more understanding. Because I heard you talk about your early years of discovering your love of leadership through sport and your competitiveness you mentioned through your through your siblings. Presumably those characteristics, that, that drives that hunger and that competitiveness and the desire to win and be a leader, a leader in sustainability, a leader in DE&I, social justice, mental health, all the things you've talked about. So in a way, I suppose it's healthy competition. Is that fair or... Yeah, I, 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 it's it's very, very fair. I did grow up with uh, you know in a competitive, competitive environment, you know, and it wasn't like my brothers were you know trying to rush meet me to the, the breakfast table every day, but, but sometimes, and we were and I off really valuing competition, and but maybe not as much the competition as the the training and the development to compete. So I grew to love uh, the, the the principles and the practice and the form and practicing the form and trying to be an expert at that. And, and then the competition was just really a, a yard, a measuring stick. Like when you used to stand in the doorway with your mom and she said, okay, now you're prone to your five one, you know, it was just a measuring stick. That's all competition is. But the real value is the, it's the principles and the process and the, and the honing your skills and keep learning new ones and trying a new trick, you know, that you've never tried before. That's what I love. Again, very stoic. Um, You've talked a lot about three levels of design, and I, I, I interviewed Tony Fidel's ghostwriter not long ago about his book, um, Build. And I think 
you've talked about very few reach that third level of design, but I do think that Tony Fidel um, with Nest uh, came close to that. And having read a lot of what you've written on LinkedIn and heard you talk, I have to ask the question, can we expect the Brack and Darrell book? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I'm, I don't know. You know I, I, I do like to write. I like to read great writing. I, I, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I really don't know. I, I'm not being coy. I just don't know. I think if I if I felt like I could write something that was going to have a big impact and really be meaningful or try to be meaningful, I would do it. And if I couldn't, I wouldn't do it. So I think there's plenty of great stuff out there from a lot of great people. So I don't think you need another one. But if I really feel like, you know what, there's something not being done out there and I feel like I could do it, I'll do it, you know, and, and see how it goes. The funny thing with with Tony's book, he just had an Excel chart and he just filled in the Excel or the Google Sheets with all the things that he he thought about, just lines, and he handed it to Dina and said, "Here you go, go write something with that." So if you, you if you ever want to sort of meet a good ghostwriter, I'll put you in touch with Dina. She's fantastic. I'd love to meet her. I um, I don't think I would write a book that way. I'm an English major. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> it's a little harder for me to hand off the writing part of writing, you know. But but he's obviously you know Tony Fidel. I've met and I'm, I'm just blown away by the things that he's doing. I agree with your comments about Nest. I, I think, you know, stage one, two, three designer or level one, two, three designer, it's really hard to get to that third level. It's really hard to get anywhere close to, to the midpoint on the second level, the way I measure it. So being a kind of company where you really design inside and out in everything that you do, even for your employees, and for you know, every, it, a, a person who walks into the, the, uh, the, the, the the reception area of your office, they should experience something. They should walk away with a little surprise. They should walk away with, uh, if, if you're really good, they might even walk away a little inspired. You know, If you can pull that off, which very few companies do that. I mean, maybe Disney did that at one point when they were smaller. Maybe they're doing it now. I don't know. I'm not Disney, but I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the results. Yeah, it's hard to think of actually companies that can deliver that and that experience. Yeah. But what it, what it Thing to strive for. I mean, isn't that just an incredibly exciting thing that you, you yeah. think, gosh, you know, what if? Uh-huh. I know. As a leader, everyone faces moments of uncertainty. Um, I interviewed Richard Branson when I was uh, working back in the day in some branded content. And he said, the only difference between me and anyone else is just I have more problems to solve than everyone else, and I solve them faster. In a way, that's, that's interesting because it, it makes you suddenly realize that you're just facing this never-ending conveyor belt of problems. You, you get over one and then there's another one to overcome or challenges or barriers. But you must encounter times where you, you're facing unsurmountable barriers. How, how do you confront that, those moments of that everyone feels of fragility and doubt? There's only one insurmountable barrier so far that I'm aware of, and it's death. The others are, are manageable. As long as you don't give up, you know, I think you, you can always hope to find a way to solve problems. So, and I really believe that. And I'm, and I love it when we, we encounter something in our business where we say, gosh, you know, there, there are only two models. There's this scaled model where everything's really big. There's this, you know, completely fragmented model where everything's really small and there's no in between. And it can't be in between because you've got to be either low cost or super different. You know, I love when I hear those things because it makes me want to do something different. You know, I love to be, I love to find a new way. And I think there's always a way you know, to do something try something and experiment and i'm uh so 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 i just i just 
you know, I just very rarely hit, hit these real dark periods of, oh my gosh, I'm going to doubt. I would much rather just act on something and then correct it later than sit around and doubt myself, worry about it, you know, too much. Hmm. What are your natural gifts and talents or your superpower? My natural gifts are super talents. You know, I always struggle with that question too. I, I don't know what they are. I mean, I will, I've always been, um, you know, pretty good at, at academic learning, you know, but I, I and, and I'm, and I'm a pretty good athlete, but not, I'm never going to be a pro player or something. I'm a, I was uh, taller than everybody else when I was growing up, so I was a natural leader because people naturally looked up to me. And I was, since I had older brothers, we did a lot of sports. I was a good athlete, but you know that that faded as my height uh, equivalized to everybody else's. So I don't know what my my superpowers are. I guess I'm maybe my greatest superpower is my buoyancy. I am very hard to knock down. I don't stay down for long. What do people okay. what do what do people compliment you for? Uh, well, they compliment me for th- things I deserve and a lot of things I don't. And I get a lot of compliments for the turnaround at Logitech, the amazing performance, blah, blah, blah. You know, they, I always say, you know, you do realize we got 6,000 people and I'm one of 6,000 ever, and the other 5,999 people actually do have jobs. They spend as much time on Logitech as I do, so it's very much a team effort. I guess the things that compliment me on that I think are probably, you know, probably well positive is, you know, I'm, I'm a very nice person. Um, I'm, I'm pretty quick and I'm a decent communicator. Um, and I really do care about people. Conscious of your time. I get the last couple of questions. Um, my goal, the, my goal with the podcast, I started out as an experiment in serendipity, just interviewing a few people I knew, and then they recommended uh, other people and it's gone on from there. But now what I'm doing with it is being more intentional and trying to, facilitate and encourage random collisions between the guests where diverse minds can come together um, to trigger innovative thinking. So my question to you is, are you open for me connecting you with other guests like Dina Levinsky, the ghost writer for Tony or anyone else I think is interesting that could lead to interesting conversations and sparks of innovation? I would be more than open to that. That's the kind of thing I absolutely love. I love almost everything. (laughs) So I, and I love, I think I love everybody. So I, I would, I think I would really enjoy them. Cool. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to building that. The reason I'm doing it is I believe there are too many think tanks and we need to build more what I'm calling action engines, people that are connected together, making progress. Um, cause I don't think enough people are connected together. Uh, there's a lot of people around the world doing amazing things in everything from mental health to criminal justice reform, yeah. all sitting under the SDG banner, but in their own particular lane. And I think sometimes we need to start doing cross-fertilization of those minds and those passions and, and experiences. So we'll be doing that. Um, um, well, uh, Bracken, thank you very much for your time. I uh, know you're busy, uh, man, changing the world, uh, making a difference, changing people's lives, uh, making for a better planet. And I really appreciate your honesty and appreciate the time you spent with me. So thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much and see you next time.